Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. The shocking news came early on Thursday morning as Israel reversed course on its decision to allow in the boycott supporting members of Congress Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. With President Trump pressuring Israel to deny them entry, with their itinerary revealed to be entirely one-sided and anti-Israel, and with elections rapidly approaching in Israel and looming in the United States, their trip was now effectively canceled. AJC slammed Israel's decision, expressing love for the Jewish state, but saying that in barring the two representatives, it, quote, did not choose wisely. AJC CEO David Harris joins us now to discuss this news. David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I think the number one thing a lot of American Jews are wondering today is why? Well, <laughs> assuming that uh, the question is about uh, Omar and Talib, the two members of Congress, uh, I, I think, first of all, one has to understand what was going on in Israel and then what was going on here. Look, the bottom line, to just to jump ahead for a moment, Sefi, is that uh, at the end of the day, Israel was faced with two bad choices. Uh, but the less bad choice, we believed, was um, letting them into the country. The worst choice was barring them from uh, visiting Israel. So why did Israel, in the end, do this? Well, it seems to me that there are three possible reasons why. The first is, uh, as some Israelis have said, they had a peek at the planned itinerary of the two members of Congress. And this was not about a trip to Israel in order to meet with Israelis and see Israel and hear different perspectives. This was a very politicized trip that focused on sort of everything that was perceived as bad and wrong with Israel. So some would call it a propaganda exercise. The second reason that Israelis offered was there is a law that people who support BDS, that is boycott, divestment, and sanction against Israel, are not going to be admitted to the country. Well, both of these, Omar and Talib, have supported the BDS movement. And the third and perhaps most intriguing um, explanation that we're hearing from Israel is this resulted from conversations between the United States and Israel and specifically involving the president of the United States, who was very clear in saying that he hoped that Israel would not admit them. So somewhere in and among those three reasons, you have the explanation. That being said, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, from our perspective, there's also a cost here. Uh, and we believe at the end of the day, from our balance sheet, that the cost of refusing them entry might be even higher than the cost of allowing them to go in their propaganda exercise. Mm -hmm. AJC put out a characteristically thoughtful statement uh, this morning, I would say, and it mentioned that every country has the right to determine for itself who can and cannot enter. In light of that, was it unsettling to see the president of the United States kind of put his thumb on the scale and, and tweet this morning and rumors abound that he was kind of pressuring behind the scenes prior. His tweet said it would show great weakness if Israel let the two representatives in. Was that unsettling? Well, look, first of all, to your first point, uh, let's not forget that every democratic country does reserve the right to control entry into the country. 
So this is not the first time that any democratic country in the world has refused entry to anyone. The United States, under various administrations, including the previous administration, which um, also barred entry to Michael Ben-Ari, who was an extremist Israeli politician, that they didn't want to see come to the United States um, at the time, I think it was 2012. Um, so every country does this. So some of what I'm seeing in the Twitter storm and the reaction is kind of over the top. It's overblown, as if this were the first time in history that any country had denied entry to anyone and pointing the finger at Israel. But having said that, I still believe that these two members of Congress, as members of Congress, uh, and given the U.S.-Israel relationship and given all the sensitivities in the political parties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, should have been allowed in. And yes, is it unusual? It's quite unusual for the president of the United States in this case, as you say, to put his thumb on the scale, to weigh in publicly and privately, and to ask the Israelis to, to reconsider this. And then what we saw was a tweet from the president uh, following the Israeli news, which depicted the Democratic Party as being embodied by these individuals, Omar and Tlaib. So you already see some of the contours, uh, not just of next month's Israeli election, but next year's American election. I'm still kind of grappling with all that's happened, with news that is coming out, with you know what the implications of this may be. So I, I may disavow this hypothesis at some point down the road. But isn't there a way of looking at this where Israel is the victim? I, I, I mean, a month ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu decides to let Omar and Tlaib in. His ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, says without equivocation that they would be permitted entry, quote, out of respect for the U.S. Congress. Then we have pressure behind the scenes from the president. We have the tweet this morning from the president. You know, talk about being caught between a rock and a hard place, right? Very much so. Israel would say, because we've had discussions with the Israelis quietly um, in the hours and days leading up to their final decision or seemingly final decision on barring entry, look, they would say, you know, a month ago, we did not have a sense of their full agenda. So maybe we were still a bit hopeful that their agenda would include efforts to meet with mainstream Israelis, not necessarily who agree with Benjamin Netanyahu, but who fall within the, you know, the, the contours of, of mainstream Israeli society. Uh, but we got to peek at their planned agenda, they say. Uh, we got to peek at who's funding them. Uh, and the group that's funding them is a strongly pro-BDS movement, the Israelis assert. So you have those developments plus the president of the United States unusually weighing in very publicly and saying, you know, I, I don't think this is something you want to do, Israel. And who knows what was happening privately as well. Now, look, again, to be absolutely fair um, here, it's very difficult for any Israeli prime minister of whatever political party to simply ignore any American president of the United States. In this case, it's Donald Trump, but it could be any American president if he makes a direct pitch to you. And I don't know what form the pitch took. I don't think uh, any of us who are talking do. Those who know don't talk, and those who talk probably don't know. But if the President of the United States says, you know, either as a personal request or as part of some larger discussion about give and take, please don't do this. If you're sitting at home on a couch in the United States, it's easy to kind of reject that. If you're the prime minister of Israel, it's a little harder. I'm not saying, therefore, that I agree with the prime minister. As I said, I have great respect for him, but I don't agree. But 
it, you know, it's only when you're sitting on the couch and have no responsibility for your actions that you can kind of dismiss all of these things. Sure, let them in uh, to Israel. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter if they create tumult. Sure, it doesn't matter what the president of the United States says. The things do matter. So in the real world, you have a cost-benefit analysis, and it's a tough call. As you said, it's between a rock and a hard place. On this one, we just came out in a different place than our Israeli friends. In her statement replying to this, Ilhan Omar said that Trump's Muslim ban has been exported to Israel. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said something along the lines of, you know, it's no coincidence that these are two Muslim women being banned from Israel. You know, I, I saw that and I kind of thought, well, hold on a moment. I was in Israel two months ago on an AJC Project Interchange trip that included a Muslim woman, uh, by the way, a Muslim woman of color. Do you think there's anything to these accusations that Ocasio-Cortez and Omar are leveling against Israel, that there's a bias, a gender bias, a religion bias, a race bias to, uh, to the ban? I, I don't, not at all. Uh, I think they're simply trying to play these cards, knowing that they're toxic, incendiary cards. And I don't even think, Sefi, with all due respect, that one has to point to individual Muslims that one saw entering every single day on just about every plane headed for Israel or at, at any number of entry points on the ground, including from Jordan to the West Bank, uh, people of every faith, including many, many, many Muslims are entering Israel. I mean, last year alone, according to the statistics, at least the public statistics, we don't know what else there is, something like 30 or 40,000 people entered from Muslim countries to visit Israel, countries that have no diplomatic relations with the state of Israel. So the idea of playing this card, you know, associating Israel with Donald Trump and with this Muslim ban, uh, is is a dirty card to play, to be absolutely honest, a very dirty card to play. You know, for some, it will evoke, you know, uh, enthusiasm in the United States. But for many, I think it will frankly only undermine any case or credibility that Omar and Tlaib may have with respect to this whole issue. I mean, were they going in good faith or not? You know, I, for one, don't believe they were going in good faith. I simply believe that the cost of not letting them enter was potentially way higher than the cost of letting them enter, engage in their political stunts and shenanigans and letting them leave. At the end of the day, there are 435 members of Congress. There are a grand total of two people that were going in this delegation, two people. They come just after more than 70 7-0 Republican and Democratic members of Congress came to Israel in the largest single gathering or, or collective gathering of members of Congress in one week. So I think Israel is stronger than these two people, way stronger. The pro-Israel movement, the U.S.-Israel relationship are all way stronger. And I don't think we should cower in fear even as they peddle these ridiculous conspiratorial theories. Here's a thought experiment to close our conversation on. Let's say Representative Tlaib's office had reached out to you and said, David, Ilhan and I, we're going to Israel. We're going to spend most of our time in the West Bank, but we have time to go to one place in Israel. What is the best place to go to to get a sense of the real Israel? What would you have told them, David, if that question had been posed to you? Well, I, I, I would have said, first of all, uh, uh, don't limit me to one. <laughs> uh, and I would have squeezed in even into the one sentence more than one place. Um, look, I, I, first of all, I think from their point of view, they should have asked for at least uh, one or two meetings with mainstream Israeli political leaders. 
are they so afraid of hearing from them? Are, are they are, are they somehow going to be what poisoned, quote unquote, by engaging with an Israeli political leader? They can't even talk to them. So on the one hand, I would have said go there. On the second hand, I would have said go to Yad Vashem uh, and understand um, the Israeli psyche, Jewish history. And on the third hand, I would have said and walk the streets of Jaffa and Tel Aviv and look at not just the vibrancy, the diversity, the complexity of Israel, but also look at the Muslim citizens of Israel. In some cases, wearing a hijab, uh, with mosques open, with Friday services full, everything you would see contradicts everything you've allowed yourselves to believe from a distance. Everything. Uh, The nature of government in Israel, the nature of democracy, the nature of pluralism, the nature of minority rights, uh, the nature of racial and religious diversity, everything contradicts what you've allowed yourselves to believe from Minnesota and Michigan through all kinds of, of narratives and mythologies you've heard. Are you afraid of exposing yourself to it? So why was their itinerary so restricted that they were unwilling even to expose themselves to all of these sides of Israel. I'm not saying they would have come back abandoning their pro-Palestinian policies, but were they really so fearful? So on the one hand, Israel was fearful of allowing them in, but these two were also fearful of exposing themselves to mainstream Israeli society? Bad show. It's a shame. I mean, you know, all parties, I think, are guilty here, but it's a shame that they won't have that opportunity. David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Zefi. Thank you. The new curriculum didn't even last until the first day of school. This month, a special committee in California announced a new model ethnic studies curriculum for possible statewide adoption. The only problem was that the curriculum, though it helped elevate the stories of some minorities, totally ignored and erased others and even trafficked in some mild anti-Semitism. AJC and other Jewish groups swung into action, and the California Legislative Jewish Caucus helped lead the charge. This group, composed of the Jewish members of the California State Legislature, announced this week that the new curriculum would not be rolled out, and a new group will work to revise the finished product. State Senator Ben Allen, chair of the California Legislative Jewish Caucus, joins us now. Senator Allen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, happy to be here. So tell me, how did the issues with the California Ethnic Studies model curriculum first come up? Well, they were first brought to our attention by the folks at the San Francisco Bay Area JCRC, the Jewish Community Relations Council. They had been monitoring this issue for some time and had gotten a copy of the draft curriculum, raised a whole set of concerns about what was in there, and brought it to our attention. And we were then able to craft a response and raise the profile of some of the concerns that, uh, that they had. What is it about the content of the curriculum that raised concerns among folks in the Jewish community? Well, everything from the draft curriculum effectively erasing the American Jewish experience uh, to omitting anti-Semitism to denigrating Jews in some areas, which is pretty ridiculous, and reinforcing some negative stereotypes against Jews to singling out Israel for condemnation. Uh, There were just a number of things in there that were real concern. And this is just the stuff relating to the Jewish American community. There's a lot of focus on 
bigotry and hatred of, of all sorts of different forms uh, mentioned in the glossary and various aspects of the curriculum. There's not a single mention of anti-Semitism in the glossary, even though they have 12 different forms of hatred and bigotry from Islamophobia to patriarchy to cis-heteropatriarchy, uh, colonialism, and, and not a single mention of anti-Semitism. So it's it was very problematic, and we, we felt the need to, to push back. You know, the Jewish caucus as a body supports the idea of ethnic studies. I think we love the vision that was articulated uh, by advocates. You know, I have a quote here from Cynthia Liu, who was one of the advocates for the bill that created the draft curriculum in the first place, and she talked about how we hope that mutual understanding, empathy, and racial and cultural literacy will be the fruit of this important law. And that's what this is supposed to be about. And, and our whole point at the end of the letter was that it would be such a cruel irony if the very curriculum that is supposed to be about promoting understanding and, and, and empathy would actually help to institutionalize the teaching of aspects of anti-Semitism to California's kids. And what a crazy thing that would be. Yeah. <laughs> Having no connection to the California public school system myself, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around, you know, exactly what we're talking about here, right? You know, what what was this curriculum designed to be? Was it going to be an elective? Was it going to be something that schools would have to implement? You know, what age kids are we talking about? What students are going to come in contact with this curriculum? You know, what what was the vision here? Well, it's a great that's a great question. It does deserve some explanation. This is a draft model curriculum. So when this model curriculum is finalized, uh, in whatever form, it will uh, be a suggestion, effectively, a guide, a guideline, guidance to school districts up and down the state who might want to implement an ethnic studies course. So anyone who might want to do that would be able to turn to this as a, as a guideline. Now, they wouldn't be required to take this particular curriculum as their own, but it is very, these draft curricula are very influential in determining what school districts teach on the ground when they design courses for their students. Now, here's the kicker, though. There is a bill making its way through the legislature that would require the teaching of ethnic studies mm-hmm. as a graduation requirement for uh, K-12. through So if that were to pass, then school districts would have to pull together ethnic studies curriculum to teach their high school kids. And this would certainly be very influential in that process. It's one of the reasons why when we saw this, we knew the context of the other bill. We thought we had to get involved quickly and forcefully. And so what was the process by which this was designed? Obviously, it seems like it was a flawed process, you know, but how did it happen that it, it went without input, not only from the Jewish community, but from so many other minority communities? Well, so they, there were three authors who were chosen uh, by the California Department of Education, and there was an advisory committee that met with them to go over what they were producing. It turns out that one of the authors is you know, very committed to BDS, and mm. uh, it's a tricky thing. I think traditionally ethnic studies has focused on the four, they say, four pillar groups of communities of color, so our, our, our Latino community, African-American community, uh, Asian Pacific Islander, and uh, Native American, indigenous uh, communities. And that, is, that has traditionally been the focus of ethnic studies. Um, there were folks in the Arab-American community who said, hey, we really want to be included here. Um, one of the things we heard back from some of the folks at the advisory committee, they basically said, hey, if you guys wanted to be included, why didn't you speak up? I, I think we didn't really know that that was even an option or that was something that was being encouraged. Once we found out that that's what they were saying, we, was like, well, we will speak up and we will certainly ask to be included. And I think then folks from the Hindu community and the Armenian community and many other communities started to realize that they needed to Basically, we were being told that they need, we all need to advocate for ourselves to be part of this conversation. No other state has done this before, so this is all kind of uh, new. 
And I think to some extent, this controversy is the result of, of the growing pains of this academic discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we at AJC pride ourselves on being coalition builders, and you alluded to this. I'll just, you know, make it explicit. My colleagues in California actually worked and, and put out a, a joint statement in partnership with several other significant populations in California, Koreans, Armenians, uh, Greek Americans, Hindus, um, organizations representing uh, those communities to make clear that this is not just the Jews, you know, speaking out uh, against this, but it's, uh, it's something that really uh, impacts a lot of people who view their stories as their minority stories, their immigrant stories as ones that are or at least should be considered important to to California and, and really to America. Um, and especially as we're in this moment where our discourse around immigration, around privilege, things like that is so fraught, um, it's important to not elide the stories of the different communities that make up our beautiful patchwork, not only of the state of California, but of the country as a whole. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And let me, let me take it one step further. I actually think that uh, if we were to broaden out the curriculum um, to give students a better context of the long history of xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment, it would actually help sensitize a lot of white students to the historical context associated with the current anti-immigrant vitriol. If more students understood the kinds of slurs that were launched against their own ancestors, coming from Italy, coming from Ireland, coming from wherever else in Europe, uh, there was terrible things that were being said in the mainstream media, in cartoons, on editorial pages of respected newspapers and magazines about Italian immigration, for example. And if people were to better understand that, I think they would also better understand and better contextualize the current anti-immigrant sentiment that is being foisted upon folks coming from Latin America or elsewhere. And actually, I think that would help to create more empathy amongst white students who are maybe descendants of those very same immigrants who were attacked and vilified just because they were coming from Ireland or Italy or elsewhere. Oh, yeah. You know, the good news now is that, you know, announced uh, late this week or uh, or in the middle of this week, rather, is that we're going to see a change in this proposed curriculum. So, Senator Allen, are we starting from scratch now? You know, where do we go from here? What does this process look like? And how can you make sure as a legislator that with this success that you've achieved, that the Jewish caucus has achieved, that AJC and, and other community groups have achieved, that systems will be put in place to prevent this kind of thing from happening again? So, great question. First of all, it's unclear as to what exactly will happen. I think there are those in the leadership of this decision-making process who want to see the whole thing scrapped and just start it anew. Um, I think there's a real strong argument for doing that, given uh, how fundamentally flawed this curriculum is. There are others who I think would say, well, uh, well, maybe we can you know, jettison the problematic parts and, and take the good parts and kind of work to, to rebuild the existing curriculum. So that's the debate right now. Uh, that's one of the conversations at the state board and, and the IQC, which is the Instructional Quality Commission that's, that's kind of tasked with overseeing this process. So we'll see how it all goes. I do think that there is a fundamental agreement amongst the leadership that whatever happens, there, there needs to be major changes made to this curriculum. And um, you know, we've been talking about issues really in the Jewish community. There's a lot of other stuff in there that I think is going to demand some scrutiny as well. Um, just before we close, famously or <laughs> perhaps semi-famously, maybe this is not famous at all. Maybe this is really niche. The U.S. House of Representatives has no Jewish caucus. Our listeners in different states across the country may be kind of scratching their heads, wondering whether their state assembly or, or Senate has a Jewish caucus, or maybe they know for sure that, that a state does or doesn't. You are the chair of the California Legislative Jewish Caucus. We're just curious, you know, what does that mean? You know, 
is that a helpful body to advance Jewish concerns, to perform Jewish advocacy in California? Is it a model that, you know, you would want to export to other states as well? You know, what is that like? Well, we wanted to make sure that the Jewish community had a voice at the table. We have an important piece of the California story, that California fabric. Jews have been kind of a vitally important part of, of California culture and California economy, and Jews have stood alongside all sorts of communities to stand up for civil rights and for inclusion and for a truly inclusive vision for the state. And that, that's, that's been part of our heritage. It's been part of our responsibilities with regards to Tikkun Olam. And so we come together as a caucus and advocated for the Jewish community, but also advocated for the Jewish community in the broader context of, of, of our goals of inclusion. And, and pluralism. I'll give you one example, right? When there was the attacks on the Poway Synagogue here in California, we had already done the groundwork with the governor to talk about how we needed to get some more money down the pike to help with security grants, to help institutions that might be at risk of attack uh, harden their facilities so as to be able to better protect against hate violence. And by the way, that's money that is going to go to mosques, going to go to synagogues, community centers, churches. Uh, all sorts of different institutions that might be at risk because of hate-fueled bigotry and violence. So uh, we were able to get funding for the Museum of Tolerance, for the Museum of the Holocaust, to, to kind of keep telling those stories uh, and, and make sure that a new generation of Californians will know what happened in the past and have a better context to fight against bigotry in the days ahead. We were able to get some funding for some of the Jewish summer camps that had burned down during the fires. Uh, and by the way, also served the broader uh, Los Angeles and Bay Area communities, a lot of communities, uh, kids come in from disadvantaged backgrounds who go up to those camps and are able to benefit from those camps, including many, many non-Jewish kids. Uh, we were able to get funding for Holocaust survivors, and we were able to get um, you know, a bill just passed that I carried that made it so that HOAs can't discriminate against folks who want to put a mezuzah up on their door. And uh, we were able to include some language to help Muslims and Hindus and Christians as well who wanted to put inobtrusive but meaningful religious symbology on their doors so as to be able to protect their freedom of expression. Right now we're working with Muslim community leaders to get a prayer space at Los Angeles International Airport in the International Terminal, Bradley Terminal, so that uh, you know, folks of all faiths, certainly folks of Muslim faith who have to pray five times a day, but people of all faiths can have a safe place at the terminal where they can pray uh, and, and, or, or have a moment of reflection. So we're looking for ways to help advance and engage both causes that are important to the Jewish community, but that also branch out. Just the other day, we went with the Latino caucus to visit one of the detention facilities down on the border and learn about the challenges there and learn about the incredible work that the Jewish Family Services are doing with the ACLU and with uh, HIAS and, and some of the other traditional refugee resettlement organizations to assist asylum seekers who've been coming over the border uh, and learn about ways that we can work further and deeper with our friends from the Latino caucus and other members of the legislature to kind of address our, our shared goals in that respect. So this is a, a place for Jewish members to come together, defend our community, stand up for our community, but also reach out to other communities and help and work and collaborate and cooperate with them to advance our mutually beneficial goals. Well, Senator Allen, thank you so much for the advocacy work that you do with the caucus and your your broader responsibility in the California legislature. And thank you for being a friend and ally to AJC. Well, I appreciate you guys a great deal. And by the way, we've also been working hard on issues relating to Israel, trying to make sure that folks understand there's a lot of other aspects to what happens in Israel beyond the conflict. We've been working on everything from you know, memorandum of understanding associated with our institutions of higher learning between Israel and the state of California and the University of California, work on water and, and on conservation efforts, on energy efficiency and clean energy and green energy, 
And, and there's a lot of really interesting work happening in that space that we've been very involved with as well. And, in fact, we're probably going to be bringing a group of legislators out there, uh, including some members of the Latino Caucus. We're looking at December as a possible trip. So we, we look forward to continuing to partner with you and making sure that we're all uh, uh, doing our part. Well, the job is never done. Thank you so much, Senator Allen. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Tel Aviv on fire. Good for the Jews? No, this is not about arson or wildfires, two things that are decidedly not good for the Jews. It's about the latest cinema sensation from Israel, a film called Tel Aviv on fire. The name comes from a fictional soap opera filmed in Ramallah and aired on Palestinian and Israeli television. A junior writer for the show Salam is stopped one day at a checkpoint on his way home to Jerusalem. A random string of events leads to him sitting down with the commander of the checkpoint, whose wife, it turns out, is a huge fan of the show. Thus, Salam, the unsuccessful Palestinian writer, secretly enlists Asi, the Israeli soldier who turns out to have the soul of a poet, to help him write scripts for the show. And hilarity, and something a little darker, ensues. The movie is a great watch, hysterical but also empathetic, and viewers will walk away having laughed and also learned something about Israel. That kind of experience is always good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.